Thanks hey. for joining us today. So kind of fun. We're doing this uh, from a hotel room at the MGM Grand uh, in Las Vegas. As you can see, we have some Las Vegas things behind us in this view. Uh, start talking about reInvent so far, how things have been going, uh, some announcements, uh, and also like a little bit more personal stuff around both of us being the first time uh, here at the conference. First time at reInvent for me, and also first time in Vegas. And uh, I'm also looking to, you know, for those who have never been or who want to come in person, maybe like next year, give you some insights and some tips just to prep, because if I knew these, I would have had a much better time the first couple of days. Um, and there's certain things that you can never really fully prepare for. And, uh, you know, anything can sort of happen. You can sort of meet anyone while you're here. And, uh, you know, what if I had like 2% more preparation? I think I would, I would have had an easier time like the first couple of days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, let's just jump in. So what, say so is your first time in Vegas as well? Yes, first okay. time in Vegas. First time in Vegas. First okay. time at reInvent. Okay, first time at reInvent as well. Um, so let's start with Vegas. So how has that been so far? At first, I, I was feeling like I was worried it was going to be too overwhelming. There's lights everywhere. There's tons of people. You know, I'm coming off the coming off the 2020 pandemic, and this is like my first big travel that I've that I've done uh, for an event with a lot of people. Uh, but I think there is that collective energy here. Uh, people are very very excited to see others, meet others in person, collaborate in person again, and there's a certain part of a uh, of a serendipity that happens when you actually meet the people in person that you've been seeing over zoom like just above their heads yeah totally. um and that sort of thing and then there's this moment where you just get surprised like wait i didn't know you were this tall or you were this short or like wow you're super buff like all these sort of things like end up end up going on and it's just really great because you know for me i always believe and try to remember that all business is human to human and being here at reinvent really is enforcing that and uh, i love it yeah, no, that's super cool. Yeah, that's been a big thing is that I, I we were at this uh, serverless container lounge at the Venetian and we got to meet, you know, Imra and, and Alex Debris, and Jeremy Daly in person. And we got to see Farah, who's yes. now at AWS, previously at Stockery, um, Julian Wood, a lot of the like the major people in the space are doing stuff. Uh, and it was so interesting because like like you said, they all look way different than their Twitter photos. So it's like very hard, like, like Julian Wood, I think in his uh, Twitter profile has a short hair and his hair was like down to here and it was like blonde. And so I was like, I was like, I, so then I saw him on, like, I didn't see any of his talks while he's been here. But then this morning when we were trying to figure out topics uh, just to like re-flag on this, uh, on this podcast, I saw him on stage and I was like, oh my gosh, that's Julian Wood. Cause he said his name was Julian. Uh, while we were at the serverless container lounge, but I just didn't put the two to two together. Um, and we had an interaction like that as well. Yeah. They have this stand, it's called Serverless Espresso. Um, and they have this big expo center here at the at the Venetian. And when you walk in, it's tons of booths of like all the different vendors and there's consulting companies there. There's third-party you know, monitoring software. There's stuff for East 2 there's stuff for containers, there's stuff for serverless. And then they have this serverless espresso machine. And I'm sure... A lot of y'all saw it on Twitter. Super cool in person, honestly. Very cool in person. The entire backend built with uh, with uh, serverless Lambda functions and so on. Um, and then they just have baristas and, and uh, basically behind the counter. You order through an app. Um, you just go to a website um, and you basically send in your order. 
and then they basically make it right there for you. Yeah, in a couple minutes, you yeah. can have a perfectly well-brewed espresso. Yeah, and so while we were while we were sitting there admiring it, um, we saw this person talking to other people, and then came up and started talking to us. Yeah, and it was like, hey, how's it going? What's your name? And he Are said, you in, "Do you like serverless? Are you in the serverless?" Yeah, yeah, and we're like, yeah, you know, we're from Serverless Guru. Uh, nice to meet you. You know, I did my. Yeah, I'm Ryan, and this is Josh. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, my name's Eric. And oh my God, it was Eric Johnson. And I, <laughs> we like, I just didn't even recognize him in person. And he's even been on the podcast. So I'm so sorry, Eric. Like, uh, it was too much. It was too much input. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember I went to, um, I went to Chiang Mai, Thailand at one point and I was walking around and they had like the city streets, like for like three blocks. And it was all like vendors and there was t-shirts and there was people yeah. selling food and there was loud noises. And it was just like crazy weaving in and out of people. And I, my contacts dried out and I felt like I was having a panic attack <laughs> and like, I got like micro amounts of that while being here. Yeah. And definitely like the, you know, the vendor experience the like day one, like right when it opened mm-hmm. was just a, uh, an army of people in all directions. Yes. Um, yeah. So what have your thoughts been so far on like, on some of that craziness of just like how many people started showing up? Yeah. Well, so the wild part is, is, you know, there's tons of people coming in and you can really see it in between keynotes when people are flooding in or flooding out. And apparently there's only one third of the amount of people that are usually here. So we're supposed to be having like, I don't know, close to 80,000 people. And I was talking to one of the, uh, what, what is it? Like the global marketing coordinators, like AWS. And they're saying that there's only so many places that you can actually hit like 100,000 people. Um, like Vegas is one, San Francisco, New York. Mm. Uh, anywhere else like it's easy to find one five maybe ten thousand but any once you get above ten thousand individuals it's really hard to find something that also has like amazing food like food here is absolutely amazing um and it's like a, just like a great thing to like bond with other people is to figure out like what restaurant that you're going to and that sort of thing which is really great um uh, as soon as i got here as i was going through like the reinvent hashtag like the number one thing i was reading were people's uh sort of like tips and tricks for before they came here. I wish I searched the hashtag beforehand. Yeah, totally. Everyone was like, bring really good walking shoes, bring a water bottle and understand that you're going to be doing a lot of walking because, you know, the other day I could have swore that I spent, you know, six or seven hours just walking around just inside a hotel, like 10 miles, just like inside, uh, not even going outside sometimes. And then there's the outside travel and that. So certainly certainly like pacing yourself pacing yourself with uh you know how much water are you drinking how far are you going yeah. where are all your events yeah um and i've, and I've really liked because i've been um asked to give my feedback and there's been other people here talking about like what do you really like about reinvent and what are things that you don't like as much and i think the thing that i i, I at first wasn't wasn't liking was trying to figure out well there's so many people but how do I have like deeper connections with with other individuals like am I going to really be able to have like conversations and like meaningful conversations about about technology about techno uh, like technological transformation serverless specifically and um, it was sort of challenging to find that at first um, though thankfully it wasn't until after we started talking to some of the people we knew at, at AWS and some of the other partners that we worked with that they were able to sort of, you know, network effect and um, tell us about either certain events or things that were going on, which was, which was great, but I don't know if everyone's having that experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was super confusing. Like, I, I think that I don't normally get frustrated. It takes a lot for me to get frustrated 
Uh, Josh has worked with me for a long time, and we've had a lot of bad things take place, you know, like unintended things, unplanned, come out of, unplanned just like getting hit in the face with some random stuff. You know, it's a startup, right? All startups have to face a lot of challenges as they're growing. Um, but gosh, trying to figure out how to get into that expo booth center was the most frustrating thing in the world because basically what it is is that they have the registration area, and that's like hall C, and then behind it is like hall D but you couldn't go down the only hallway that was open to get in there because we didn't have a badge for the booths, which makes sense. But the way that it was communicated was like, there was another entrance. And so, and the distances between like that hallway back to the other center and then back to that hallway. And like that whole thing was like chaotic and like also like very long. Probably two miles of walking. Yeah, it was, a, it was, a, I mean like <laughs> back and forth and back and forth. And we just like, we're definitely getting too many steps in. Um, <laughs> And so then we're just like, uh, and then we, fig we figured out eventually that it opens at 4 p.m. for the general public, but then we still didn't know if we would go through the hallway or if they would just open up this black curtain behind registration and have doorways there. And yeah, and so that whole thing, and so we, we asked probably three different people that work there that they all have like ask me shirts on um, and we could never figure out what it was just like. And they're really yeah. helpful. They're like, oh yeah, you just go down here. Oh yeah. And uh, it's like, <laughs> oh, okay. But then, like, there'd be some security or some, like, blockage. Like, literally, like, you know, what is it? Like, hallway does not exist. For a There's a wall there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you just go here, here, and there. It's like, what? <laughs> what level are we on right now? There's, like, four levels. So, like, that was really hard to also understand. It's like, when it does the red thing, Yeah. did we need to be up a level or down a level? And, like, figuring that out was also confusing. But, uh, yeah, overall, I mean, the first day, like, or the, the was, I think it was the first official day they had Midnight Madness on, yes. su on Sunday night. Um, somebody, somebody's idea was like Sunday night before the event starts at seven in the morning or six yes. in the morning. Uh, we're going to basically have an event running to like one in the morning. Um, so that was fun. It was super cool. Honestly, they had BMX bikes. They had some guy on an air guitar, which we actually, we met him later. Yeah, uh, his yeah. name was Justin. Yeah. Um, we were walking into the Venetian and then he was basically leaving to go back to Chicago and we we're like, oh, hey, you're the air guitar guy from last night. You know, thanks for the performance and all that stuff. And super cool guy, really happy about like just being there. And it was his second time in Vegas or first time in Vegas or something. Yeah, I think it's um, the second time performing in Vegas. Second and time. And he's the, he's the world champion of air guitar. Yeah, how crazy so, is that? Only the best at Amazon, as you know, as you know. Yeah. We, we like to see. Yeah. And I think the keynote, like the, like the, that like keynote presentation was so interesting because like, what was the big announcement? trying to remember the name of the service but essentially it was like standardizing infrastructure for robotics and ai um mm. for if you have a fleet of like a thousand or three thousand <laughs> robots you can all standardize i probably like their configuration and yeah. environment variables and, and that which is you know probably only amazon right now can use that but i wonder if it's going to inspire a new generation of, of entrepreneurs or innovators or a number of individuals yeah. like i think they showed examples of people who are designing like like Mars rovers uh, or moon rovers uh, utilizing this to, yeah. to plan out the, uh, what is it? Just sort of plan out how, how it works. I, I actually talked to someone from AWS yesterday who helped build the step function flow for the Mars rover. That's uh, really and cool. he was describing to me in detail sort of how it works because, you know, I, I, I was just like, I don't know, is there latency in space? He's like, that's not how it works. And I'm like, of course, I have no idea about this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was, um, it was really interesting. It was really interesting to, to hear about that. So mm -hmm. only more of that is going to happen. Like yeah. I can see yeah. even in this way, like 
Amazon is thinking in space or is thinking of really innovative technologies. For sure. Yeah, those robots, they, so this thing is like a centralized view of like your robotic fleet. And at the like asterisk there, you said 1,000 or 3,000. It's like if you want to manage a 300,000 yeah. robot army, you know, <laughs> and this is a service for you. And so, you know, you probably can't really count that many companies that have 300,000 robots working in parallel or you need a centralized view, but yes. Amazon has it. And so it's kind of interesting. Their main customer is Amazon themselves. They're building out their own service, which was super cool to see like a, a lunar rover and hear the story about how this might actually be running on, on the uh, lunar surface and mapping all this stuff out and then using the service as a centralized view for all of it. And there was also a level of like, this was the first announcement officially of reInvent and they chose to use a service that literally nobody can use, which is <laughs> <Just> kind of <laughs> hilarious. So like, it's like a really cool service, but also like all the people that were there, like the majority is probably like in the web mobile space. Yeah. And so like, there's, there's probably like database components, obviously container components, web server components, uh, yeah. serverless components, but to a large level, most of it's probably like web and mobile, mobile related. Yes. Maybe some background jobs, some ETLs. But when we get into like robotics, it's like super, super small amount. AI, another small amount, like true AI, right? Yes. Like not like marketing buzz AI. Like we have this third party platform that's backed by AI, you know? And it's like, what does it do? And it's like, for loop. It's, a, <laughs> it's like we scan over your stuff and then we have an if, if else branch. <laughs> um, There's a machine. Yeah. Or we use AWS recognition and you upload a photo. It's like, yeah, but you know, it's a managed service. And so that checks the machine learning computer vision box. But like, you know, on the AI on that and like, on like doing real, you know, building out models and all that stuff, you know, that's a yeah. whole different ballgame and actually doing something useful with those models, not yes. just building models. Exactly. Because I think a lot, like a lot of times you can spend a lot of time just churning on how to do that and build those out. But regardless, so that was the, that was the Midnight Madness, super cool. They had the LA roller uh, derby or roller skating team. Mm, and so yeah. they're on four wheel skates and they're skating around the event. There was dancers that would just pop up out of nowhere. That's pretty much what that was. It was like a flash mob the entire time. Yes. Flash mob. They had a DJ going, they had lunar rover robotic stuff yeah. taking place. Um, and, you know, got to do some networking, um, all that stuff. And then, uh, yes, yeah, so that was like, mm -hmm. that was to kick off the event. And then uh, the next morning we just started seeing the flood of people roll into registration and that was something that was unexpected because we were supposed to, we were told to be there sunday yes sunday at 10 a.m and then we showed up and it was so seamless like we were there like at like 9 50. Yeah. no one in line no, no one, one in line, line we got we got our jacket we got the swag we got all that stuff and then we we're like wow there's really gonna be no people here this year because there was a hundred people yeah there at when they said to pick up your badge uh and then we came back a little bit later and it started filling up a little like okay maybe there'll be like a thousand like two thousand people and then monday oh my gosh on monday and then tuesday like every was, day since then oh my gosh 500 people in both lines line yeah thousand people in line thousand people in line and if you went into something and you came out and you came back i'm still a thousand people in line yeah the whole time and so i think in total we talked to a few people at the serverless uh, container lounge and they said that the announced number was like 36,000 people would be here, yeah. but they said uh, only like apparently 6,000 AWS employees were here mm -hmm. and the other 30,000 may or may not have fully showed up. And yeah. so roughly there's probably like 20 to 25,000 people, which was way more 
than I then, thought. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. more than I was thinking in that way. But it's been really great. And it's been great to talk to other other peers in our space who are either consultants or at enterprises or other companies utilizing services, as well as talking to the, the teams who are building the serverless services that we're using or the applications and getting to hear their vision. I think that's been one of the things I've been very impressed to see just how, uh, what is it? Just how how solid the vision is for so many of these uh, these services, and how the team really really cares about mm. the purpose of why. Like, why am I building this? Why is this important? There is. It's not just some like super top down coming from like Bezos. It's the people who are part of these teams really really care about what they're building, which has been very very exciting just to see, um, and it's been great to relate to because I think it's also providing uh, more context as well as more more and more insight for when we get to talk to clients and when we get to talk to other people who maybe don't understand the vision or why would I choose to use AWS versus someone else. But I think that I have more, I have more, more of an understanding to communicate that. As far as the serverless, serverless announcements, um, other, other aspects of serverless that have been happening at reInvent, right? Is there, has there been any that have been like standing up to you or ones you're excited to, um, I don't know, sort of like bring back the serverless guru? Uh, yeah, there's been a ton. Um, and so we've been watching it. We have like RSS feed as serverless guru. And so that's been running uh, the entire time. I think one of the biggest ones that we'll probably get uh, usage out of is uh, serverless Kinesis. And so we run Kinesis uh, for almost all of our clients. And so the idea of having a serverless option there definitely seems like a good bet. I think I did read though that like, it might've been from Ben Kehoe that it might be six times more expensive for on-demand usage. Mm -hmm. And so it brings up a really interesting thing, which is, you know, and this is, you know, reflective of other serverless services as well with the on-demand nature of it. If you do have to spike up in traffic and it's not consistent, then serverless is actually pretty cheap because, you know, you have serverless kinesis here. Uh, you're, you're not having a provision uh, 24 hours. Uh, if it's needed, you can use it. Same thing as like a serverless uh, RDS. Uh, or like a DynamoDB paper request. Um, so those different models um, allow for it to, you just not to be paying the entire time, right? However, there are downsides to that. Like a downside might be that you get some crazy spike in traffic from a, you know, some type of equivalent DDoS attack. And now your thing is scaling to the size of Uber or Lyft, right? And your DynamoDB tables are also scaling to the size of Uber and Lyft. And so is your serverless RDS table and so if that's real traffic, fantastic, mm -hmm. right? If it's not real traffic, not fantastic. Um, and then also on top of that, if a company is leveraging those and uh, like serverless, my, uh, serverless uh, Kinesis and they do have consistent traffic, it could be better actually to just use the normal Kinesis or use the normal uh, Aurora, like RDS uh, cluster. Same thing with like, and sometimes you get some runway out of like a DynamoDB using read capacity and write capacity just if you want to limit how much actually comes through. If you do want to actually turn those dials, it is nice that they had the dials first and then they built the abstraction later. So you do have the option of both. Um, so always love to see that stuff. But yeah, there's a ton of serverless announcements that I come out. That's like one of the big ones. I think even the underlying container something has now uh, like 10 gigabytes on Lambda. Yeah. Um, I haven't played around with it or, or really read too much into it. Um, but I, I know that for some use cases, it's probably going to be uh, really huge to have that extra uh, uh, storage space yeah. and, and memory. So um, yeah, so that's awesome. Um, I think even I had a conversation around why that was important and it's, it's now giving me flashbacks to that conversation. 
where we were talking about machine learning on Lambda and basically preloading the preloading the Lambda function uh, with a model file. And when you have a machine learning model uh, file, oftentimes it can be pretty large size. And so loading that onto the file system was limiting when it was a bit smaller. And so now it being 10 gigabytes is going to actually give a lot more runway and usage out of building like serverless, you know, computer, uh, like computer vision, um, you know, like uh, inference uh, endpoints and things like that. So that if you want to run, like, let's say um, uh, some type of computer vision uh, functionality, you might have to normally use like really large servers to run it like some big P3 servers and plus plus. Now they have like tons of stuff. Yeah. My experience around doing serverless and machine learning comes from uh, my time at Nike. And so I'm sure things have progressed quite a bit. Every single year, there's like new server sizes. Uh, but regardless, like what was what I ended up building while I was there was like a development and test machine learning uh, setup with serverless where instead of running it on that big P3 server, what I would do is I would pull in the model file from S3 load it onto the underlying container uh, for that Lambda function. So it would have a huge cold start at first of like four minutes or something crazy, download all of it and set it up. But then every request past that point would be like one second. And so then if you uploaded a photo to it, the first time it would take four minutes to run. And then every time after that, it would take one second, one second, one second, one second. And so for development and test purposes, that was like a decent workflow because we could either try to keep it warm by just ping it and we had a higher chance of uh, being able to, to make those requests like one second when we needed it. Otherwise we just wait the four minutes, you know, save a whole bunch of money. Um, and then we knew that when we went home at night, <laughs> right, that we weren't, we didn't forget to turn off that server that was costing a ton of money. And so uh, options like that are super cool. And so I can definitely see that in the machine learning space and other spaces like that, this, uh, this 10 gigabyte um, increase is gonna be pretty huge, so yeah. yeah. No, I definitely think so. And I'm glad they, uh, I'm glad they did that. Cause one thing I wasn't aware of was just sort of like the, the contention and like the, like the idea of, of Lambda, because what is it? Like, I don't know, as, as time goes on, there's only, there's going to be more services that help all, all people, but in a world of like finite resources, the team has to make decisions around, are we, cause one of the goals that I'm learning at reInvent is that each service has a vision for how these teams imagine people should build their applications and structure their, their sort of technology infrastructure and architecture and organizations. And so the services are sort of telling people, this is the Amazon, the Amazonian way at the best practice of building. And so Lambda is in an interesting situation where, you know, do they contain, how, how much do they cater to people who really still like containers and are, you mostly working in containers versus uh, more of a pure serverless uh, model. And I don't know, the feedback that I was giving was um, like, I don't know, like provision concurrency was really, really helpful for our job and for what we do, even as just the very level of being able to uh, sort of put down the, uh, like when people say like, oh, I can't ever use Lambda because of cold starts. Uh, like this is an unsurmountable problem. Every yeah, single just the way just I address it. Ready to table flip it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like like you like you were saying to have to have some to have real options that they can use, I think has really helped adoption overall. And even if maybe it's a little antithetical to like what it what lambda means, yeah. I think it was important for the marketplace and important for increasing adoption. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think that I, I spoke to a couple of the AWS uh, lambda people. 
and uh man they're passionate mm -hmm. and i think at one point after a few beers and uh you know they're and i won't even name names so nobody can be held accountable for it but mm -hmm. um it was like you know 100 of use cases basically are covered by serverless you know like and it should be used for for everything and i love that passion and just like the energy around it and like there's no like you got you have to come to the table with why this use case doesn't work yeah. versus saying it doesn't work you know like show me evidence of why um and i did actually have a conversation where that that i there was actually a use case that came up and it was in one of the happy hour events that we did mm -hmm. i believe it was for new relic or serverless ops or yeah. something it was like another container type of thing uh got some cool little radio speaker thing that says nice. serverless on it um but anyways there's a conversation and uh, the guy that I was talking to was telling me about how um, about how their company. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm losing my train of thought. See, I was I was doing the, I was having another conversation, so I wasn't at that. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think about like <laughs> why I was setting up so long. Oh, about why serverless doesn't work. So yeah. the stuff that they worked on was uh, like emergency response, and they had to they had a basically a radio. Um, they had a box that mm -hmm. they like hard physical hardware. Um, where it would have to uh, connect the 911 calls. And so you can't have that go down ever, yeah. right? And so like that that was something where it was like, this thing is needs to be so self-contained, so isolated, so yeah. secure, um, because if they mess that up at all, basically 911 drop, like calls could drop, people could lose their lives. Like yeah. it's, it really is life and death. Um, and so in situations like that, where like they literally need to have like a close proximity uh, to things, the idea of moving towards something like serverless when it's already like very solved for a long time yeah. uh, and very, very complex to do anything about it. Um, so what they ended up saying is that because of the cloud and because of serverless, they were able to actually reduce the amount of physical servers that they have from like an entire like floor to ceiling wall down to like two that's about like this tall right yeah. and that's because they offloaded um like for instance the audio transcripts and um uh like the call logs they would basically put them into s3 now versus having them stored on one of those servers and then they would do uh event triggers off of those s3 to then do other things like saving in databases reformatting the data searching through it and so on and that's really important because what that's a lot of them do is kind of do this like we're going to still be on-prem and we're going to still be like having physical things, but we're still able to, to kind of peel away like layer by layer. Um, and so that was a serverless use case where it was like the, there was so much uncomfort around the idea of that changing um, and the, the uh, potential impact of it, that serverless isn't the right fit for that use case right now. And honestly, it, it may never be. It's kind of one of those things that's kind of difficult. Like, if they're running um, CIA workloads or something, you know what I mean? Like you can't, you know what I mean? You can't really do like, you need a secure box. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're fine to not have the developer velocity and things like that because security and so on is, is so much more important. Um, and so, yeah, long story short, that was a cool conversation. Um, that is one use case. Um, I wish I could have connected those two people together yeah. to hear them talk about it. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was really awesome. Um, another highlight of the event so far for me has just been asking people the question of CDK versus SAM oh, yeah. versus serverless framework versus raw cloud formation versus some other <laughs> unknown thing. And I love always asking people that question. 
But oh my gosh, for the first time, I actually had real deep, deep, deep answers yes. to the point I was like, oh my God, never thought of that. Wow. Never thought of that. You yep. know? Same. And so uh, one of the people that I was talking to, the biggest CDK person I've ever spoke to and his knowledge of CDK is yeah. incredible. Right. Um, and every different type of conversation, every single maybe point that I kind of, I said about like maybe CDK <laughs> drops the ball here or does it create just like more tech debt and all this stuff because it has to be maintained. He had an answer for all those things, which was like very interesting. Yeah. Um, even about, and this is cool, you know, making a, a CDK a module or something that basically generates serverless framework and uh, does it in a consistent, reliable way. And then I talked to somebody else yeah. and they're like, CDK is like not the right direction. <laughs> it's like solving some things, but it doesn't solve, it doesn't actually get rid of everything. And it like, it has a long, long, long-term effects. So you have short-term game and gain and like developer velocity because you can just do almost anything with it. Right. It's a, it's, it's programming. Uh, you're writing like JavaScript or whatever it ends up being TypeScript and so on. And then you can almost like <laughs> bypass some things that you, you can't with like raw cloud formation, right? Mm -hmm. But his opinion was that you're, you're almost like choosing, I wanna say he was saying that you're choosing the dev side versus like the ops side. Yeah. And the ops side actually becomes really important because five years from now, when that package that you're using for building that, that, that infrastructure as code uh, with CDK no longer works, you no longer can run that program that builds that infrastructure as code. But CloudFormation, very, very likely that a decade from now will still run your old templates. Yeah, And that's a really important thing because you're basically just giving it a, a, a static file. Um, there's no loops. There's no, you know what I mean? There's none of that stuff there. There's no third-party libraries that are being pulled in. And you can almost have like, it's more of a process. It's more things to look at. But at the same time, operation-wise and maintenance-wise, like long-term, it actually is an easier option uh, because you know that it's going to be handled by AWS. And so basically his opinion was that any time that we're taking on more responsibility as the customer, as our individual user, that is potentially a misstep because uh, if AWS can cover it, we should let them cover it. And that way, like long-term, we don't have to manage very much. I heard the same thing in what someone was talking about. Like they, they're now they used to work at AWS. Now they are a consultant and they do primarily use serverless framework, but their pushback or critique of the serverless framework was there are certain aspects of it where you have to assume responsibility of just your, your environment and your variables and your resources that you may not necessarily know about. And in an ideal world, whatever the next gen is, is going to be, most of that will be handled by the, uh, whoever's providing the service, whether that's AWS or you know, next generation of serverless anchor or whatever it is. So that was that was also very interesting. Because um, in these conversations, I'm also talking to, just hearing, you know, like like in five, 10 years from now, are there going to be just individual, um, like these individual frameworks and individual solutions that are going to help us create infrastructure as code? Or are they all going to dilute into, into one? Or is there going to be some meta language where you can notate out what's going to happen and then it can, then it can sort of uh, what is it compile to either one or whatever your specific one is. So we don't we don't know, and, and we're so yeah. early. And I think that's like the people that I've talked to about it. They believe it's a problem, but they're also in living, breathing, eating serverless every day. And when they talk or talk to anyone else who who's looking at more of the broader marketplace, they just say this isn't really a problem that the others really want to solve.
yeah 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 totally um and so it's kind of interesting just like dive into that it's like um having like a unified uh iec thing that like compiles to like all clouds and all that stuff and um i would say whoever tries to build that oh my gosh you're gonna need a lot of engineers and, <laughs> and you're gonna need a lot of time and uh resources and all that stuff because what we're really talking about there is a thousand new feature launches um however often by aws that could be like every month that could be every six months a thousand product launches by like azure gcp cloudflare and so on and then basically having like a unified thing underneath it that like you were saying that basically yeah. compiles to that um that then is able to then recompile back into cloud formation or some other form that like aws like understands or gcp understands and at least like back in when i was working with uh, gcp um i noticed that switching from aws to gcp i didn't get the same feeling as like cloud formation or having this like infrastructure as code and so it's almost like the cloud providers themselves have to like catch up to aws for that to be like you know even if even like a thing um because at the end of the day like when we're accessing aws or gcp or azure to build that infrastructure, we're probably having to connect to their APIs. And then somebody has to model and map all those APIs into property values in like a unified way and a structure that like makes sense. And like, it's a really hard problem. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and who knows, it might be something that uh, it might be a solution that like maybe doesn't even need to, it's a solution to a problem potentially that not that many people have. Um, and, and if they do have it, maybe the reason why they think it's a solution is because they're looking at the problem wrong, right? And that's when we hear like multi-cloud, for instance, right? Yeah. Um, and so obviously multi-cloud is a thing, right? But usually you have like your 90% on one cloud mm -hmm. and then you basically commit to that cloud. You learn how to do the tooling, all the different infrastructures, code pieces for that cloud. And then maybe use some other services on the other 10% or even 5%. It might be some like, uh, like Google Cloud, like BigQuery for like, large data sets and querying through that um and then everything else is on like serverless or uh like aws whether it's like uh serverless or non-serverless um and so then you learn how to write infrastructure's code for aws and then because your gcp footprint is so small you you only need like a little bit of that right and so if you were more like 30 percent 30 percent 30 percent then maybe that would be more approachable but the thing that you know it comes to my mind is like when you have like teams, right? Somebody has to know how to do AWS, GCP and Azure, yeah. know how that voc vocabulary translates. And then you need almost like three different divisions of, of things that are taking place um, for that. And so it's very hard to hire uh, for it. And so really, if we we're gonna talk about a unified compiler, we need a unified cloud, right? You wanna get rid of AWS, GCP and Azure completely. And you wanna have a unified cloud that does these things and those things feed into that one unified cloud right that has the best of gcp the best of azure and the best of aws um, as an abstraction layer over the top of all of them um, that has a, a unified uh infrastructure as code layer uh, as well um and so you know um, but then don't you run into like the worst vendor lock-in problem ever like if it's and then if you place your bet on that yes yeah, so, so it's interesting yeah so with with something like that like a unified cloud over the top you could actually swap out the you could swap out aws lambda for gcp uh cloud functions or even cloudflare like functions and cloudflare workers and all that stuff um because to the user they would see unified cloud function unified cloud function 
And then underneath the unified cloud function, you would find the best option for the best performance, sure. regardless of what cloud provider it came from. And then it would be on that unified cloud to then unify the billing as well sure. from all these different places. It's super complex. And there might just be a scenario where 20 years from now, it's still individual clouds. I think those abstractions over the top are obviously already being built. We're seeing it with serverless cloud at the moment. So mm -hmm. shout out to serverless Inc. Uh, that are trying to tackle like a problem similar to that, where I, I, think, I don't even think you need an AWS account. You can just basically start using their stuff under the hood. They might be using Lambda. They could be using Cloudflare workers, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the cool thing about it. And uh, it just, it's another approach. And so I actually talked to uh, the Cloudability CEO um, nice. all like way back. And he was talking about like what the future might look like. And he was saying that there's going to be individual clouds based on, uh, you know, different like use cases and things like that. Yeah. And so I think we're starting to see that with serverless <laughs> cloud, actually, if you're doing this type, this type of development, this product might fit you. Yeah. Um, however, it's not an either or. And I think that that's very important. Like, I think when we think about these options, a lot of times we go like, I'm on team red, I'm on team blue, I'm on team black, I'm on team white, yeah. um, but I'm on AWS, I'm on GCP. But really it's like an and mentality that I think we should have is that all these things can exist in parallel. Mm -hmm. Serverless cloud can make it easy for new developers unfamiliar with cloud to then build things out that are very robust and work, but may not take them all the way to the point of like writing the raw cloud formation stuff themselves, right? But they may not need to do that, right? And so it does solve a really big use case. And then for the people that do need to have that flexibility, that do need to write that very granular level, they can still do that as well. Yeah. And then both are actually valid and both are actually like helping the marketplace, which is super interesting. So rabbit hole, <laughs> rabbit hole for sure. No, I like it because I think, you know, something I'm learning is, and as I'm really seeing here is that uh, like the problems that people and businesses are facing, especially at the enterprise level are just so complex. And there's room to have, you know, a Swiss army knife of solutions uh, rather than just, I only have a screwdriver and I have to, I usually need to pick a screwdriver or a drill or a hammer. I can only pick one of these. But if you're building a house or trying to, you know, solve world hunger or create a more sustainable world, like some of the people that I'm talking to yeah. here, it's like, you need all the tools, you need a toolbox. And you know what? And I bet you so many times this happened where they're like, let's build one tool that does everything to build a house. And then it never actually works. <laughs> like never in the history is that actually working, right? You have individual like drill bits, all that stuff, yeah. whatever. But it's like, it's like you can you can make the uh, drill part um, modular, yep. but you can't make one tool that then unscrews everything or screws in everything, right? And so you're still always going to need like some type of piece. So yeah, kind of interesting. I don't know. Hopefully you're all listening. That made sense about like where that line is between you know making a one size uh, like a one size fit all tool, uh, which is very difficult, or building like something like a, a drill. Um, that can have a modular drill yeah. bit, you know? And when we think about where that line is in terms of building products and not going so far that we create like a black box, yeah. that's like the ideal. And just to kind of give more of that analogy, something like Amplify, yeah. uh, which, you know, we just love to dunk on Amplify. Um, <laughs> and, you know, honestly, they probably have solved like some of the stuff that I talk about when I talk about Amplify, but I still love dunking on it because like it's a use case in the past and they could figure it out in the future, I'd still reference this as like a thing that happened. Yeah. Um, we found, and even myself trying to do consulting uh, for serverless, I would use Amplify for a project. I would try to use their Amplify CLI. I would try to build my stuff with Amplify. 
And then I ran into blockers where I basically wasn't able to do what the client was asking me because the resources that were generated, I couldn't touch and interact with at the level that I needed to. And so I found myself trying to go into the compiled cloud formation that the Amplify uh, framework was doing. And I would try to modify that, thought, that value. But then when I would modify it, Amplify wouldn't pick it up and deploy it because it wasn't done through their system the, that way. And that was more like, you know, an artifact of what was being built. And I couldn't touch the underlying system. And I've had this happen with many products and it's super frustrating. When the product doesn't, when the product is a black box and they're doing a whole bunch of things inside of it, and then they just spit out something, it gets very frustrating because um, I just can't, when it, the second that I can't do something that I wanna do, I'm switching away from that product. Uh, and so, yeah. Long story there. That's that's kind of where all this, you know, black box black box can't build one tool that does everything. Um, but for Amplify specifically, just to give them props, if you are uh, newer to cloud and newer to and you don't know anything about cloud formation, Amplify will get you something. It'll get you a website hosted. It'll get you an API deployed. It'll get you a user pool. It it will allow for traffic to start coming through that. Um, is it like fully production like ready? you know, a TBD on that. It wasn't in the past. It might be now um, after this new reInvent. But yeah, long story short, when you're building a product, uh, make sure to keep in mind where you lock your users in yeah. and don't lead them to a dead end. Because the second that you do that, they're switching off the platform. And, you know, a lot of times when we think about stuff, product companies want to have control. Mm -hmm. They're like, we want you to use our thing, right? And we want our name on every single component of it, but it's not, it's more for like the own company, like ego versus like actually being good for the customer. And sometimes being good for the customer can be harder to build and like less easy to understand, but by doing it and doing it for the customer, you end up might have more adoption and more usage. Um, and funny enough, we actually, we had this cool thing happen where we went to uh, this place called Black Tap, I believe it is, yeah. at the Venetian uh, for lunch. And right in front of us was the founder and CTO of FusionOS. And it just so happens that we're using FusionOS for a client. And so we just asked him, like, hey, how are you? Are you at the event? You know, how's that going? And what's your name and all this stuff? We said, we're from Serverless Guru, um, you know, uh, founded the company, we have our COO. And then it was like founder of the company and their CTO. And it was like, wow. And then they invited us to sit down and get lunch, which was yeah. awesome. So thank you for that. If uh, Fusion Auth ever hears about this. Um, and such a cool conversation and so much interesting stuff happening. Uh, and it correlates back to all the stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. They intentionally made it like a community edition where they don't get any of the data yeah. of any users that actually use their product. And so that's a very radical thing, right? Most companies would not allow for that. Yeah. They want that data. And I remember when the, the serverless options for monitoring and observability, they would wrap your Lambda function. And it was like, every time that you deployed it, it was wrapped. Like, it wasn't like, they want, they want all of the data, yeah. right? They want, the, they want their stuff to be always like in that way, like doing that, um, even if it's at the point or whatever, where it's not actually useful for the customer, right? Um, because there could have been a product, right, where it and there still could potentially be on the marketplace or it might already exist, uh, where instead of doing that, they were just setting up CloudWatch for you. Yeah, It's not a company, right? Like it's not, a, you don't have your name on it, right? But for the customer, if you're automatically setting up all that stuff in CloudWatch, uh, insights, dashboards, 
you have like the proper, all that stuff that's inside of their own AWS account already. And then they don't really have anything coming from, from their individual account back to this platform, except for the fact that you're actually using it to generate stuff. Yeah. That might be the best user experience possible, um, but monetizing that might be difficult. And Fusion Off has been working a long time to do those type of uncomfortable things uh, with their products. And so I would say, you know, shout out to them. Anybody's looking for some authentication stuff and you want to try out something new, definitely look at Fusion Off. They're, they're doing a more of a downloadable version of their authentication where it can run and it will keep running for years, right? So if you, yeah. if you download that version of it and you use it, it's basically like a stamped, um, a stamped time where all the way five years, 10 years, it's going to keep working because everything they do is backwards compatible. There's no breaking changes. I was pretty them. impressed. I was pretty impressed. And I think it definitely aligns with, I don't know, some of our feelings towards like, uh, just like professional services and lines of how we like to treat customers. And because it's like, you know, people who use our services and use like their services, like they need a solution. They need a solution for their problem. And so, you know, creating obstacles just for the sake of getting like marketing data or user analytics is not, uh, you know, it may be a short-term game, but is it really a long-term? Is it in each party's long-term best interest? Yeah, and I think that's as a consumer, and this is a hard conversation to have, is the product being built to be sold and acquired, or is it actually being built to survive for the next decade? And for, and for users and customers. And I think that that's an uncomfortable conversation because in reality, you know, some of the businesses that are starting these startups, there is that level of you're starting that business for the idea of selling it at one point. And so, like Josh said, you might take that short-term turn just to get the thing sold. Um, but at the same time, I feel like it's very disingenuous and dishonest. And it's, it's kind of bad because the thing is, is like when they're building up to that moment of selling, the marketing they're inspiring people to use that product through like marketing and all that stuff when the under underpinning thing is actually just to sell it um and then once it's sold you get a the customer base yeah from the owner and yeah then you have to scramble and figure and do damage control yeah and i know what is it one thing that i've been hearing a lot people i've talked to and people who are doing a lot of correspondence with uh people in like the cio cto role is that specifically for serverless you know it's sort of like i hear serverless as an idea that i want to do but i'm i'm struggling to figure out like the best way to do it or i don't know how to implement it like could there be a playbook and i can definitely say that you know we're doing this every single day serverless transformations for net new as well as figuring out migrations and advising on that and so we definitely do have a playbook and this is sort of our some of the questions that we have to ask ourselves when it comes to figuring out like who are we partnering with? What services are we using? Because we don't want to put our clients ever in a position where we're recommending a solution and, they, and they're on a path of, I just can't wait to get sold in two years. So yep. some larger company can just, you know, um, just, just, you know, vaporize our, our software solution. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's, that's a hard decision. Uh, but if you're a decision maker and you're thinking of the next, you know, three, five, 10 years of your technology infrastructure, your IT infrastructure, you know, that's a critical decision that you don't want to have to hard pivot in the middle of production, uh, something like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a hard thing. And like, you know, uh, for those for those listening right now, I'm not sure how often that you've used a product that said it worked and it didn't work. Right. But man, when you talk to the you know, you're talking to like the founders of the company, you're talking to the highest up people at the company, you're interacting with them. They're talking partnerships. You know what I mean? Like they're 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 the whole thing is like this is a real thing that works and it does something useful. And then you actually try to use the product. And you're like, this doesn't even do anything. Like this is just a UI screen that you try to make, you try to like click into it and it pops up with some like graphs or whatever, but there's no real substance there. But on the outside, you're like, wow, this is doing a ton. And I'm not going to name names or do anything with that conversation that we're having right now, except for saying, do your due diligence. Don't believe all the hype around different things. And uh, yeah, then trust your gut, right? And you know, the big thing is that uh, at Serverless Guru with, with clients and stuff, uh, we always get asked with partnerships about uh, getting a commission mm-hmm. for signing up clients, right? And this is like a lot of transparency, actually. Most I don't think most companies would even talk about any of this stuff. Um, but we always deny that. And we'll continue to, to deny that because it crosses a boundary that I feel like is an ethical boundary um, around, it gets to a point where if that product, that product might be the best on the market, but when it's not, are we still going to try to sell it and use it for clients because we get a, a kickback for it? And in that way, that's why we never take commissions from products and we never will at Serverless Guru because it ends up being this thing where it might be best for us, but it's not best for our actual customer. And if we betray that trust, it's actually bad for us long-term. So maybe like, oh, yeah. oh, we got a question. Okay. So the question is, where do you see cloud computing in the next 10 to 15 years? And what else are you expecting from cloud providers in the coming years? I'm going to take a Josh first. So where do you see cloud computing in the next 10 to 15 years? Oh my gosh. 10 to 15 years. You know, who knows if I'm necessarily the best person for cloud thought leadership, but um, you know, I, I think it, it's hard to tell, like, you know, like a five to 10, 10 to 15 years, you know, if you can think about like how many, how many 15 or 20 year predictions have you ever known to be true? Like, that's like an important thing to know. Yeah. And, and, and to think about that one. So maybe we could reverse engineer it. Maybe let's take like a baseline. What will still exist in 10 to 15 years? I like computers, software, yeah, developers, probably more developers than today. Exactly. I know. Amazon is committed to training like 29 million more software engineers and like AI and machine learning. So there will be more people who are software engineers. You know, there probably will be, there definitely will be use cases where you will probably have on-prem solutions, actual servers. Uh, I think there will be more people utilizing more of a serverless model or um, like paper execution, paper use, paper use model, auto scaling. I think there's going to be more abstraction layers that make it much easier for someone who doesn't have as much robust knowledge and experience of cloud or serverless or specific implementation, just to to sort of boot up a computer or a UI and and build an application. I remember years ago, Ryan and I would read these posts on Twitter of like, wow, this is the power of serverless. I just like opened up a couple things and I made this application and like, yeah. in like in just eight hours and I sold it for like $10,000 a pop, like each time, like a, yeah, it was like a video was cool. conference service or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we should have jumped on that. That was, that was, if we could say like, what, what did we miss on? We missed like building a templated out like serverless thing. 
it's not too late but no it's not because we're we're definitely like still so early in that but i think what we're like in 10 15 years is we'll see that maybe now 80 60 plus percent of enterprise companies maybe their organizations are a third or more utilizing serverless yeah having more robust serverless architectures yeah definitely yeah so to kind of pick up on yeah. that question too i definitely think like uh more adoption of serverless um you know like like crazy <laughs> You know, and I think like there's kind of a, an interesting battle that will take place over the next like decade. Uh, and, you know, let's put a pin in the Web3 thing for after this. <laughs> um, uh, so I think there's an interesting battle to take place between uh, no code, like uh, yes. like no code platforms and code code platforms. Right. And we've seen we've seen no code do really awful in the past where you have a Wix site but then you literally can only put like an image and text on there before, if you need to do anything else, it becomes a horrible experience. And, you know, even, even something like Webflow, Webflow is a pretty robust no code platform. However, I've still had to write a fair amount of code on Webflow to do what I needed to do. Um, and the thing there is that you end up having to understand even more layers yeah. than because it like it is simpler to make that landing page to build out the website and that is very useful then once you start getting into like the more complex things um maybe like form submissions that are sending it somewhere else or something or adding in like code snippets to a to a page or something unless that um unless that no code platform has all that stuff accounted for you end up having to go outside the box and sometimes the, go, the experience of going outside the box of these no-code platforms is awful, right? And I would say that Webflow does an okay job at it, but it is a very, very painful experience. Not enough for us to switch away because yeah. we're not, because we basically went, this is not a priority. But if it was a priority and we did have somebody that was like more dedicated to our website and we wanted to keep updating that functionality and not keep pinning us, ourselves in a corner, we might even switch away from Webflow especially yeah. with the costs associated. And so, and that option doesn't meet the specific use case. And the thing is, is like, there's also this utopian view of how software gets done, right? And so a lot of times that we, when we talk to people, there's like an idealistic version of reality and then yeah. there's reality, right? And the reality is things are not done efficiently. Things are not done smoothly. People make decisions that don't make sense because their leadership tells them to do something and there's confrontation and it's human to human. And that whole process is what ends up causing the solutions to be done in the way that they're done with the requirements that they have. And that's where the utopian view of I'm going to do it this way and it's going to generate just like that won't work because their leadership is going to tell them we can't do that or we need to add this thing and then it's no longer useful. So I think the no code thing is going to definitely we're going to see that battle fully take place. I think the uh, unified cloud type of stuff where there's going to be abstraction layers <laughs> above AWS, GCP, and so on around specific things like machine learning and AI and robotics and so on, where they use it under the hood. A good example of that would be Dropbox. So mm -hmm. Dropbox initially was just a UI layer over S3. And because the S3 layer wasn't that helpful or wasn't that, wasn't that useful. And, and honestly, it's still kind of a, a, not a, a super good experience. Because you have to understand things like when you put a file into S3 and it has a folder structure, there is no folders in S3. They're all just objects. And so like it looks like folders, but it's not folders. And so then when you try to interact with the APIs, assuming it's a folder, 
or try to pull back all of the objects inside of that folder, you can't actually do it because there's no such thing as folders. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so that's like a, that's like a, 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 an interesting thing that might end up happening with the different cloud and use cases is that they'll take something like this unified robotic view plane, and then they'll, they'll take all the other robotic services from AWS and maybe even GCP or some other provider, they'll build a platform above it that allows you to provision these different services that are provisioning yeah. it with AWS or GCP under the hood. But the UI and the experience is tailored to the workflow of the companies that are building robotics and things like that. And I think the same thing will be true for mobile, web, uh, ETLs, machine learning, uh, and so on. And so that's, that's another prediction. The, the last thing I want to touch on before we, before we wrap mm -hmm. up is uh, the idea of Web3, which is very interesting, uh, blockchain, right? So yeah. when we're talking about 10 to 15 years out, <laughs> I think that we ought to talk about Web3, blockchain, yeah. and so on. So Josh, what, what do you think about on that note? Are yeah. we heading towards, are we going to be Web3 in 10 to 15 years? Oh, a billion percent. I, there's definitely going to be more use cases and more normal use cases or more like everyday use cases of that sort of stuff going on. I actually talked, stopped by like the AWS managed blockchain booth and I was talking to the individual just about stuff that's going on. And, you know, they were working with uh, and advising a, a client that was creating a public blockchain to aid in real estate uh, what is it? Like re real estate uh, transparency. So essentially like Pre pre two thousand eight, uh, and really back in the day, you could sell someone's house that wasn't yours. Like there was no way. Like the the amount of verification that existed was very very minimal. And there were instances where you would talk to someone, they would sell you a house, you'd pay them money, then you would go to live in it, and then someone would come by and say, "This is actually my house. Uh, you didn't actually buy it." And then they'd kick you out, and you had given someone, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, and then you were like, "Oh no." What happened? And like this recent thing that we saw with with Zillow, I don't know if you've been following the news, but how they had their algorithm sort of try to just figure out, well, how valuable are these houses? Uh, and they ended up bidding up the prices in all these houses across the country. And then they realized they're holding a bag of like inflated value. And then they yeah. decided, oh, time to just sell it all. Probably it's like BlackRock or someone. Fire sale. Yeah, they just fire sold literal human houses. That people, for huge losses for on the huge, Zillow front. For huge losses. And the person I was talking to at AWS, they were um, utilizing blockchain just to create a, a record of the, like who owns it. And then the prices of these houses, which are all publicly, uh, like you can look it up. Anyone can look it up. Uh, and it's like a centralized. Can't be modified. Yeah, it can't be modified. It's a centralized. It's sold for X. It's sold for X. And you could create it was bought for X. real data. Like these books aren't cooked in that yeah. way. Um, so that's like really exciting. We're going to see, I think, more of that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's like, this is a super thing. And just to jump on this, um, yeah. I think that having that type of functionality for home repair and car repairs mm -hmm. and having that as a, a way that can't be modified and is always tracked, like that's always a hard thing when you try to buy a car and you're like, I, I remember after like hurricane Katrina happened, it was like, you heard these horror stories of like these used car dealerships and stuff would buy these like, uh, hurricane flooded cars. Mm -hmm that are like completely awful at that point yeah. and then resell them as if they're brand new cars. And, and so the engines were flooded and all this stuff happened or whatever. And then, so you couldn't really, you couldn't really understand all those things, but like if there was a level of like, uh, like the, the unified standard of the car buying process is that it uses something that is block 
backed by blockchain yeah. that has a ledger that is open and you can't actually find out the exact price that it was sold or that it was bought at, where it was bought at, who bought it, who sold it. And then the next layer after that, well, repairs were done at the shop yeah. and they all fed into that same system and it was tracked like that. Then you basically, you don't have to carry around paper with you. So that sucks, right? And even that that record on the on the on the chain could even be like a link to like a PDF or something, right? Yeah. Of of that process. So you know, if anybody's listening that wants to build a, a maybe a cool tool for mm-hmm. home repair, tracking those things, or like car repairs and tracking those things, you could actually have like a platform and then sell it out to people, uh, so that repair shops could feed into it. Yeah. um yeah and even you know to loop it back into like this vision of maybe unified cloud you like with with blockchain technology you can create shared shared models of like ownership or user participation like imagine instead of like receiving aws credits you receive like unified cloud credits and that credit could also be traded on an open market and in, in that sort of way and then you really have like a, a model of open source capability where your your users are able to like extract or grow with the value of whatever it is you're building. Uh, And there's a, you know, there can be use cases tied to that token, whether it's governance or something else. And that's, you know, because we, if you think about like, oh no, like, like the major players in the market, like how could you ever compete with like, like a Google or a Microsoft or something. At the end of the day, you know, people, they, they're like that because people use their products. And uh, if you create a better solution, then you can take market share. Yeah. So I think we will see some larger entrenched companies real have legitimate pieces of competition. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a good, this is a good note about how would you build a unified cloud? It's probably not, not going to happen from a company of, of, of today. It's going to happen from a company of tomorrow. And the companies of tomorrow would have things like Joshua just mentioning, mm-hmm. where you have a coin that has real marketplace value. And then the developers are being paid in that open source, uh, or that, not open source, but that 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 current that that coin, um, and it also can feed into the system as well as needed. Because what that ends up doing is, I, I talked to a guy actually in Puerto Rico, where there's like um, it was the first time I heard about like bug bounties and oh, and yeah. feature bounties, and so you basically all of it's open source, but then you have you get compensated based on closing features out, and so. Normally with open source stuff, how do you get how do you get paid for that, right? There's no real way for you to get like you're contributing to a project, and you're helping, and that feels good, but you're not getting any like type of kickback for that. Yeah. And so now with the incentive of like like a coin there, you can get part of that coin of this new thing that's being created. So if it was a unified cloud, how would you how would you have enough engineering resources to outscale Amazon? probably by using the entire freaking developer market to build it without having the normal company structure of employees, contractors, all the, all the complexity that comes along with hiring people. You just basically have feature bounties. You have a, a way for them to, to get value back from it. And then if they have the ability to write the code, you let them write the code. They don't have to, they don't have to join into the company. They don't have to do anything like that. And you could actually start abstracting out all the different cloud providers, building that, that unified runtime. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's going to come from a company of today. It's going to have to come from this like very forward-looking, like future visionary type of uh, organization that then has the ability for uh, the things the developers are doing to have like value after mm-hmm. they close out the, out close out stuff 
Um, and in that way, you have almost like infinite scalability in terms of engineers and resources, because you know you would get project managers involved just through the open source. You would have developers involved through open source, and uh, then as it actually grows in usage, all of those coins and the incentives would be more at first and less as time goes on. Um, it would actually hold a lot of value and then be reusable um, through it. So, and as long as the product is valuable and continuing to grow in value, you sort of have an infinite, infinite value. And I think, like the final point I'll I'll add here is like, especially for mostly for people who like I don't know are sort of averse or don't necessarily understand the ideas of like coins and like minting money and being able to trade it. Like I think, like the first bridge of thinking is like think of it less like. Oh, I'm printing my own money. It's fake. It's not real. But think of think of it like a almost like a loyalty program mm. or a way to represent sort of the abstract value that something a community is making. Like um, you know, like if you have like a like a local park or like a community garden, like what is the true value of that? Mm. Um, what is the true value of that? What is uh, you know, so many companies that we work with have like loyalty programs or points or like credit card points that you get. And sometimes those points are transferable between multiple institutions, multiple yeah, hotels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I can, I can, you know, roll roulette at MGM and I'm getting points that I can spend, you know, other, other, other hotels. So, you know, in a way that is money that yeah. is minted. And now that sort of process, that loyalty creating process isn't just locked away behind tons and tons of software development and architecture. Yeah there is a more democratized way to participate in that and to use that as a funding mechanism for uh, community projects, which is cool. Like yeah. there's, it's a tool. It's not, uh, you know, I have, a, there's like a futurist I remember hearing talk about and so many people in the future, they think that, you know, in the future, we're going to have like these the human robots and they're going to be, you know, running, running the world. That's what the future really is. is like, but he, he says that, you know, in the future, we're just going to have tools. And then we get to choose how to use those tools. And so the that's, tools aren't. That's not scary though. So <laughs> I like the scary predictions, Josh. Not the not the ones where everything stays the same. Yeah, human yeah, nature is, won't change even in ten to fifteen years. That's yeah, my. That's that's a good way to wrap that. Um, and I think like one thing that's like uh, makes this more like a real tangible thing with like Web three and stuff um, is like let's look at like Web two, all completely revenue based on advertising. So if you use Twitter. Um, if you use LinkedIn, if you use Facebook, if you use Snapchat, whatever thing you're using, that's probably like most likely it's all of this web too. Um, you're the product. When you post on Twitter, you're the product. When you post on LinkedIn, you are the product. They're using that data, harvesting it, selling it through to advertisers, and then using machine learning and AI, actual AI, to then recommend things to you based on the most subtle of subconscious things that like it's even hard for the Facebook engineers they talked about or the Instagram engineers talked about it. It's hard, they, like they don't even understand because it's like self-trained. There's self-trained like AI to recommend things. And then it just iterates on that across billions of users yeah. to the point where it just does stuff that like a human recommender person, like a, like a marketing person would just not do, but it works. And then, and then it just basically keeps growing its expertise in doing that behavioral manipulation of humans, right? That's web two, all advertising based. A web three model might get us away from advertising, right? Yeah. Maybe it's an opt-in model now. So if I'm using Twitter, I'm getting a Twitter coin back. If I'm using Facebook, I'm getting a social coin back. 
I'm using Instagram social coin, right? And that social coin actually has value. And now I, and also like I have my own user identity that I bring to the platform. I don't create a new account on Twitter and on LinkedIn. I have my own Ryan Jones thing that has my details and my information and my history of using that application. And I bring it to that platform and I have the full ability to pull it away from that platform. Whereas today you have to trust that if you deactivate your account or delete your account, they're then going to actually delete it. But the reality of it is they probably don't do that. And they probably continue to use that and sell it for years and years and years after you, you close that account. Yeah. And so in this way, they won't have that access. And if you do want to open up some access to them, you will be compensated for that. And that type of passive income, when we think about like the future of like technology and UBI for universal basic income and how that whole thing will play out with the AI generation, taking away jobs and all these different like, you know, human activities that we have, like making coffee, driving trucks, taxis, all that stuff. The idea that we'll now be interacting with platforms and products that actually pay us for our interactions is awesome. And so I, I hope that's the idealistic future. That's the yeah. 10 to 15 years that we're going to move to a direction where we're no longer the product and we actually have way more control of what we do and uh, potentially being compensated. Yes. So that there's not this dystopian future where there's a 10, $10 trillion companies or where there's no longer Gatorade or Starbucks. It's just all Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, we love Amazon, but like, you know, I also love variety. And yeah, stuff. Right. I don't want them to own everything. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I would wrap my, my segment up there. So awesome. Fantastic. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This is the Talking Serverless Podcast, yeah. uh, live from reInvent in sunny Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, thank you all for attending. Uh, this is, you know, quite uh, an interesting episode and very, very exciting because this is these are the thoughts that are going between our minds and the minds of some of the people here that we've been talking to. Absolutely. It's been fun just to, just to share it and kick it out and give you all uh, a little taste of what's, what's going on, what's going on here at reInvent. Awesome. Well, on that note, Thank you for showing up today. Thank you for listening. To those listening on the recording, thank you for listening as well. If you have any feedback, comments about any of the stuff that we talked about, drop it on the ad talking serverless uh, handle. You know, if you're in the marketplace and you're building serverless things and you need some help, serverless guru might be a good option. Uh, if you're looking to adopt or migrate to serverless, serverless guru could be a good option there. Uh, this was Josh Proto and Ryan Jones signing off from the Talking Serverless podcast live in Las Vegas. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.